Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you're reading along with us, here's the beauty about this plan this year uh, that we are doing as a church. is actually month over month. Uh, so you can jump in early next month or the, in the middle of the month and still kind of be up with us up to speed. Uh, and we'd love for you to join us and read along. Uh, in this reading plan. And as you do, if there are questions that come up, we would love to take time as much as we can week over week to answer some of those questions. Uh, and maybe it's just not even with the reading plan specifically, but it's just something that comes up as you're reading scripture or you hear uh, a thought that sparks a question. We love to spend time a- answering those questions. Uh, so there's two ways you can send us those questions. One is an email. The email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a Let's Read the Bible podcast question or some variation of that just so we know it comes to the podcast. Uh, or you can direct message our Facebook page. We are the Grove Church in Washington State. You can jump into the direct message and send us the question there. We get them there too. And we would love to, like I said, take time as much as we can to answer those questions. So feel free to send them in to us so we can spend time with them. Um, as we jump into this week's podcast, I actually get to kick us off uh, as we are uh, tackling and introing two books, but we're also continuing to read some Psalms. Uh, I know we started the book of Matthew last week, technically. Um, Job too, I think. And Job as well, I believe. Uh, but we decided to wait till this week to launch the introduction and the uh, snapshot as we're working through each text. Uh, this is a podcast, and over the next several weeks, you're going to find Evan has been thrilled about coming in because Job is like his life's work right now. Uh, and I'm just going to say this. He it's a is, short life. He's right. been working uh, on, he has actually written his own book-ish around Job. Um, and so it's kind of in the pre-publication. I don't know when it's going to drop or anything like that, but uh, if and when it becomes available, I'll make sure to highlight it and plug it because Evan won't do that himself. So it's my job as his, his friend to do that. Uh, and so just be anticipating that because Evan spent a lot of time, I think the better part of two years, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, it was a, it was a decent chunk. Working through the book of Job. And so this is one of his uh, one of his favorite introductions. And over the next three or four weeks, it's going to be a favorite topic for him. So before we get into Job, uh, I want to hit the two Psalms very quickly, bring an overview of these Psalms uh, because we're going to be reading them this week. We're going to be reading Psalm 16 and Psalm 91. Uh, And so just to give us a quick snapshot of the psalm, Psalm 16 is the first one we're going to be reading this week. Uh, And this is a psalm that is sung by God's people uh, as an intentional act uh, that they show uh, they are entrusting themselves to the Lord uh, and then foster their confidence and contentment. Wow, say that three times fast, apparently. Uh, Contentment in his care. Uh, It will use the imagery of Israel's collection of land to express contentment and also looks ahead to the everlasting life that they will have in God's presence. Uh, so that's kind of the the overview of Psalm 16. So as you read it, you'll kind of see some of those themes and those those ideas there and principles there. Uh, as we read Psalm 91, which is the second and final psalm that we'll hit this week, um, this is a psalm that uh, historically I have interacted with different, mission, different missions trips, even the pre uh, the previous youth pastor before my time, which was a couple of youth pastors ago now, uh, actually a few youth pastors ago, he would use this as well as something that he would encourage his team to read on a daily basis as they're engaging in the work uh, on the mission field. Uh, and Psalm 91 describes this confidence that we can have uh, in the midst of all manner of dangers and challenges. Um, the Psalm speaks about a, uh, about 
a community-wide approach, um, but can also be read as an individual reminder as well as the confidence we can have in God in the midst of everything we face. And so that's going to be the Psalms quick overview uh, that I just want to hit uh, this week. Those are the two that we'll hit. So. Evan, take it away, bro. Love it. Well, yeah, like like Aaron said, really love the book of Job. It's one of my one of my favorites. So it's gonna be it's gonna be it's gonna be exciting. Also, as we looked at the plan, I was pretty excited because we're reading through it really slow. Yeah. So because sometimes with the books that we do, you we're powering through them in like yep. two episodes. Job is gonna be at least four, I believe, it's from what s- I looked be at. Be a slow roll. If if you're yeah, we might sound a little bit more disorganized listeners because we're recording this, but when you're listening to this, I will be on vacation. So wait, what? I know. Just so we, so we're kind of we're looking really far ahead in the reading plan as we record these. So um, as opposed to being like this week, oh yeah, we read this and this is what it is. We're kind of thinking like in a few weeks, this is where we're going to be. So anyway. Not that you need to know that. A little bit of inside baseball, I suppose. But hey, you know. Just pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. That's the behind the scenes stuff that we reward you with, our beloved listeners. All right. So Job is the first of the wisdom books. The wisdom books are the five. It's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. And it is a poetic retelling of a man who lost everything and has to grapple through making sense of his suffering and making sense of God's silence in the midst of it. Um so yeah, Job is essentially, he's a righteous man. He's described as being blameless and upright. He's described as being the greatest man in the East. And as the book goes on, or not even as the book goes on, in the first couple chapters, Job's life just completely falls apart. He's through going through immense suffering. Um, and that's the stuff that most of us know. Most of us know the beginning couple chapters, and we know the ending chapter where Job is vindicated and his life is restored. What a lot of us don't really pay attention to is all of the poetry in the middle. And so it's that poetry that it's really good. Um, it's 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 talking about themes. It's talking about questions that we ourselves struggle with today. And so that's one of the things I loved about it. Um, my whole love affair with Job started when I think it was the very first time that we did an episode on the books. This would have been the first year of the podcast. And then as we broke it down... It's, yeah, the breakdown, all of a sudden, it just kind of clicked with me like, oh, that's how it's structured. And then I read through it after that, and then I just loved it, and then I kind of just became obsessed with it. Um, but anyways, to continue on with our introduction, the story takes place either before Moses or uh, a contemporary of that time. So almost certainly it was before Israel was established as a nation because there's no references to it. And there's also a few um, sacrificial system things that make that would make you think that, okay, this is probably taking place before the Mosaic Covenant or at least before the nation is established. Um, I tend to think of Job as a contemporary of Joseph. So, and they, this is really open-handed because there's not a date given <laughs> and it also doesn't really matter. Like, mm-hmm. cause the, it, yeah, it, whether this happened during the time of Joseph or way before or after, it's kind of, it, yeah. it doesn't change the book. Um, but the reason I would think that is one of Job's friends who comes to comfort him is named Eliphaz. Um, this could be the same Eliphaz who is a son of Esau. So it, that's kind of what makes me think that, perha- yeah, so perhaps that is what's going on there. Eliphaz of the friends is also the one who's most closely... His arguments are, they're wrong, but they're the most, they're they're the closest to being right, if that makes sense. And he has some truth that he says. So he seems to have a more true relationship with God um, than a lot of the other characters. And so that's another thing that kind of makes me think like maybe it would make sense. He's Esau's son. Mm -hmm. So yeah, he would be more familiar with who Yahweh is. But again, that's really open-handed. That could just, there could just be two Eliphazes. But I think it's also important as as well as you're reading the book of Job, because it's so late in the, uh, the, 
content chronology of the of the Old Testament, mm-hmm. meaning Matthew, Mark, like not Matthew, so that's New Testament. Uh, but that's, you got the Pentateuch. Um, Job is so far deep into the Old Testament that it's not an accurate picture of when it was written. Um, and this is a pretty significant, I know, I've, I think I've recently even joked about not really caring about the dates of things when they were written. Um, but this one was pretty profound, profound to me when I realized it was written early on. In, in the Genesis account and in in that history of God's people, mm-hmm. uh, because it changes some of the dynamic of what Job is saying. Like it, it was present in, in the things that were happening were really significant. So um, I, I don't know if I've ever thought about the, it being a contemporary of Joseph, but I like that placement. Um, and I'm really curious to know if that Eliaphaz is a son of Esau. That'd be kind of cool too. Yeah, so one of, anyways. One of those things we won't know till the other side of eternity, but it's, but a, it's going to be fun to know when we know it. It's true. Maybe. <laughs> um, so the work is, it's technically anonymous and it could have, it. so while the date is pretty, not pretty certain, but at least we have a decent range. As far as when it's written, that's a really broad range Mm -hmm. Um, because it could have been written right after the events described. Like perhaps Job actually did write this down. He got some revelation, someone who was there, maybe Elihu writes it, who knows. Um, There's a lot of tradition that says Solomon wrote it. So it could have been an oral tradition for a long time. And then when Solomon is compiling all of his proverbs and other wisdom that he's going to write down, perhaps he also takes the story of Job and writes it down. So think kind of Genesis where Genesis all takes place very early on. <clears throat> oh, sorry, listeners. Uh, Genesis all takes place very early on, but it's not written down until the time of Moses. It could be the same with Job where it takes place very early on, but it's not written until the time of Solomon. Um, it also could have been as late as the post-exilic period. So when the Israelites are coming back, and again, this would have been an oral tradition that existed for a long time, but perhaps at this point it's written down and kind of canonized and is – because it's very applicable to what the people of Israel would have been going through with yeah. the intense suffering. So who knows? I tend to I tend to favor the Solomon theory. I think this is, this is the type of thing that makes sense that Solomon would have been – that he would have heard and said we need to record this and also put it into the wisdom literature. But it is anonymous, so who knows? As far as structure, Job, it's nice because there's a very clear – it's just an outline and it's you don't really meet people who differentiate from that outline too much. So the opening two chapters are a narrative and they set up the poetry. That's kind of the meat of the book. Chapters three to three through twenty-seven are conversations between Job and his friends. It's actually called as the three cycles of conversations because what'll happen is one of the friends will speak. And then Job replies, another friend speaks, Job replies, another friend speaks, Job replies, he says something else. And then it starts all over again. They do that three times where the friends speak and Job replies. In 28, there's a nice little nice little interlude, a nice little wisdom poem just to kind of break it up, uh, an intermission, if you will. Uh, and then 29 through 31 is Job's monologue. 32 through 37 is Elihu's monologue. And then 38 through 41 is Yahweh's answer to Job with 42 being a nice little epilogue. So there you go. This week, we're going to be talking about the opening narrative and the start of the dialogue with the friends. So our story starts off, it's the land of Uz, which is interesting because it's not Israel, right? So most of the stories in the Bible that we get are stories about Israelites. They're stories about Jews living in Israel. And we referenced this, I can't remember if it was last podcast or the the last episode of the episode before, where we talked about one of the mistakes that we make when we read the Old Testament is we kind of think of Israel are the only people who are aware of Yahweh, the mm-hmm. only people who worship Yahweh. Well, that's not true. So again, we talked about Jethro is a great example, yep. Moses' father-in-law, Job and his friends are another example um, in Melchizedek. So they're, Israel are God's chosen people, and he's the people that he chose to reveal most of his revelation to, but they are not the only people who worship God that we see in the Old Testament. So that is an important differentiation. Um, and it's kind of 
it's interesting because the Israelites who are reading the story, and again, this is through history, so they're thinking back on a time that was before, and they're thinking of a land that doesn't exist in the same way that it does right now. Um, I often compare it to how we in America think of the Old West. So like with Westerns, hmm. it's kind of a wild time, even though it's close to us, right? In the sense of it's not that long ago. And even geographically, like we live in the Northwest, so we're a little bit further away, but we can hop on a plane right now and we can go down and see like old Western ghost towns. When I used to live in Las Vegas, you could drive for like two hours and then you're going to get to old mining towns that are deserted and stuff. So it that's kind of the way I think about it. When an Israelite was reading about us during this period, they would think about kind of a wild time, a more you know, a little bit more romantic, I suppose you could think of it in that sense. And then again, Job is interesting because he has seemingly no connection with the people of Israel, yet he has a deep relationship with Yahweh and God even calls him the greatest of all the men in the East, which is, I mean, that's a a big title. That's quite the compliment. Yeah. Uh, Job is married. He has 10 children and he's also incredibly wealthy. Um, He acts as the priest for his family. So he he offers sacrifices for them all the time. Um, And then in many ways, he seems to have the perfect life. Like they talk about how his kids, they always get together. They're having dinners. Job's offering sacrifices because he's worried, oh my gosh, what if they sin? So he clearly loves them um, a bunch. And I think the opening chapter of Job is really meant, not even the opening chapter, the opening first half of the first chapter is meant to show us that Job's life is essentially what we would all want for ourselves. And then it starts to come crashing down. So we're whisked away to the throne room of God where there's a council of heavenly beings presenting themselves, and then we're introduced to the Satan. Um, And I say the Satan because it's kind of weird, but there is some debate about who this character is. So it could be Satan, like proper, in the sense of, you know, the snake from garden from the Garden of Eden, Eden uh, our adversary today as Christians, or it could be some type of angelic being whose task from God is to act as adversary. Um, and also, I think it's important to point out that Satan in itself is not a proper name. Like, that's not actually... Satan's name, it's a title. In the same way that God is a title, God is not God's name. Yahweh is the name that God has given us for that he wants to be called. But his titles would be, you know, God, the Almighty, Lord, things like that. In the same way, uh, the Satan is a title given. So I, I, by the way, I tend to think it's the same character that is in the Garden of Eden and is an adversary throughout scripture. But that's just a little caveat there. Uh, So the Satan claims that Job only serves Yahweh for the blessings that he has given him and posits that if all of this went away, so too would Job's devotion to God. Uh, And this insult to Yahweh's glory must be put to the test and God gives permission for the Satan to attack Job's wealth and family. So we get this really dramatic picture where all of these servants begin to come to Job. Job's just sitting in his home and the first one comes and he says, you know, all of your uh, camp. I don't remember what order it hap- happens in, but all of your camels have come and been stolen. Your servants have been killed. Only I have survived. The next one comes. All of your sheep have been destroyed and all of your servants, only I have survived. So, and, and back then, keep in mind, when we're reading about camels and sheep and goats and all these things, that is that is money. Yeah. Uh, today, our, our economy does not work in the sense of, you know, we don't measure wealth by like, you know, Aaron, today I got three goats were born. So I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. Like yeah. we, we have um, a more abstract view of value where, cause you know, 
like paper money isn't actually worth anything. It's worth something because we decide that it's worth something. Whereas here, it's much more of a barter thing where you barter concrete goods for other things. Yeah. And we find some similarity too. I mean, I would even say like we, we, we term that the whole idea of assets, right? Um, it's not just paper money that we have that determines our wealth. It's also the the properties we own and the material possessions we own that all attributes to our overall wealth. Right. Um, and so similar fashion with Job, his just wasn't cars and houses um, and yachts or whatever you have that would increase your asset um, and your wealth in that category. But it's it's livestock. It's it's their their modern day form of currency was bartering and trade and things like that. So yeah, owning property must be must be cool. Must be. <laughs> I don't. I only know that about one property, and that's the one house I live in. So, there, there you go. Uh, so, it's put to the test, and then finally, at the very end, uh, we see that one final servant comes, and he says that all of Job's children were hanging out. I believe it's in the home of the oldest brother, and then a great wind comes, crashes the house down. All of his children are killed. All the servants are killed. Only one more survives to come. So, in, in the span of I mean, from reading the book, it seems like within five minutes, all of a sudden Job loses all of his money, loses all the kids. It would be the equivalent today of like if you were at work and then you get a call that your house burned down and your whole family was inside and also your bank account was just robbed and you have no money left either. That's kind of what just happened to Job. So it's, I mean. Is it fair to think it all happened like within one five minute stretch of time? I think it happened in the same day for okay. sure. Who knows? Like, I think he got the news really fast. Yeah. Who knows when it all happened? But I think I I read it as literally one after the other. Yeah, They're once, just immediately coming yeah. to him. And that would make sense. I mean, you've also got the, the, the servant from the, the, the kid's house mm-hmm. had to travel. And I don't know if we know how far the house was, but it still would have happened pretty rapidly. Right. So a lot. I mean, it's, it's a ton to take in. You can only yes, imagine the shock. Absolutely. I think and it's another thing we always talk about. One of the issues with reading the Bible is don't just like skip past these things, especially when we know the ending. But like when you're reading this, imagine what that would be like to get that call Mm -hmm. on the phone, what it would be like to have that news delivered to you that all of a sudden you love your life. It's been incredible. And then it's gone, at least the way that you thought of it. So this is how Job responds. And I think this really shows how exceptional he is as a man. Uh, So this is in chapter one, verses 20 through 22. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, he did not sin or charge God with wrong. I mean, that's just, Hmm. I don't know. (laughs) It's like, there's this weird thing. There's two really weird errors that we can make with Job. And I think, because I've heard sermons preached where they talk about how um, Job is sinning beforehand and that's why he suffers. And it's weird because as Christians, like that's they're falling into the same trap as the friends. Yeah. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but here we're, it's very clear. Job did not charge God with sin or wrong. Like, And Job's first reaction upon hearing all of this is saying, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Like he, he, even if he doesn't truly fully believe this, that is what he's saying in the moment, yeah. which is just an incredible, again, it's just an incredible testament to yeah. the exceptional faith of the man. Well, he's choosing to, to believe it. He's choosing to make that his confession, which mm-hmm. is, which is so powerful for sure. So yeah, it's I, like, I, yeah, I can't imagine. 
It's like the, uh, is it the centurion who says, I believe, Lord, I believe, help me with my own belief. I can't remember. Who. No, that's a father. Is it a father? It's a father whose son. There you go. One of those people. Can't be healed. So yeah. that's one of my favorite passages. Yeah. It's just like, I think it's something for all of us to think of as even if like we're struggling with belief, like actually declaring truth is a powerful thing. Um, so after this, again, well, the Satan, what just happened? He was proven wrong yep. because all of his wealth and his children have died. Job still will not curse God. And so Satan goes back and God gives him permission to now he can attack Job directly, except he can't kill them because kill him because obviously that defeats the whole that defeats the whole purpose of the wager. And so uh, we get this famous passage. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Gross. And he took a piece of pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Even grosser. Then, yeah. Oh my gosh. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity, curse God and die? But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? Shall we not receive evil? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. <clears throat> oh my goodness. Talk about, don't ever say that to your spouse today, people, please. It's true. What, well, one of my favorite things about that, pat, well, so let, well, I'll get to that in a second, but we'll, so talk, we'll talk about this whole thing. Um, a, again, don't skip past this. Like he's in so much pain that he's literally taking broken pieces of pottery and scraping himself to kind of relieve, to relieve the pain that he's in. Um and also, this is one of those things that it never clicked with me until I started reading through some commentaries of Job. The, this does not go away until the end of the book. So the whole time oh, that wow. the whole time that you're reading the poetry, keep in mind, Job has open sores that are incredibly painful. And so in the poetry, he it's funny because if you don't think about it, it comes out of nowhere, but he mentions it. He mentions that he's currently in pain. He mentions that he's crying out in pain. And so like it, it and it you read through it and you forget that this isn't just like the memory of his pain that he's walking through. He's currently walking through the pain throughout the whole book. Um, and then I love that. I think sometimes Job's wife gets a bad rap and because Job is an exceptional person. And I think a lot of times we think of ourselves as being Job when no, we were, we would have been his wife in, in this story. Like, Hey, that's a shot fired, bro. I'm not sure I like you just saying that right there. <laughs> but like, it's so true, though. Like what, what Job's wife says is wrong and, and sinful, but it's very human. It's not like this exceptionally evil thing that she says. What she's, she's lost everything. And again, like just imagine the pain of – like she, she carried all 10 of these children yep. in the womb. She's raised them. She's seen them grow up. Um, the pain that a mother would feel of losing all of her kids like that. And now she's left with nothing. And she's probably at this point thinking she's too old to have children again. Like that's, that's an incredibly painful thing. What she's telling Job is like, look, look, God's cursed us, just curse him back and then we can die and we can get out of this pain. Um, and we'll get to this in a second, but that is what, half of that is what Job wants. Job does want to die. Um, and yeah. he, and all throughout the, all throughout the poetry, that's one of the things that he asks God, God for is just let me speak and get my side of the story out there and then just kill me so I can, or let me die. Basically this whole thing. It's, it's incredibly painful. I love that he says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak and doesn't call her a fool. And hmm. so one of the things I think is interesting about that is he's in that statement, which again, like you should, you should never say this to your spouse in general. Um, but what he's doing there is he's not calling his wife a fool. He's saying that she's acting like a fool. Or in other words, she's acting in a way that he knows 
to be inconsistent with who she is, yeah. which I think is- That's so good. Yeah, it's still a gracious thing that he's he's not saying that she's fallen. He's saying that what she's saying sounds like something that a fool would say. So it's it's a whole- Well, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of what he's enduring for him to have the ability to be gracious mm-hmm. to his wife, that that's remarkable. And I do think, that, I mean, just to even reiterate this for a second, I do think it's important to remember that everything Job has experienced is loss, so is his wife. Yes. Job is not isolated. Job is not the only one enduring pain and hardship and difficulty. And much like for me to see my spouse, my wife go through something hard and it wrecks me and it wreaks havoc in me, imagine the weight that uh, that Job's wife would feel as well, not just having lost her property because she lived a good life. She had a great mm-hmm. she had a great thing going and and then she was and then she was a a a bystander in this whole thing because the Satan's, you know, attack or whatever was towards Job himself, um, and she was associated with that. But she's also navigating the loss of property, the loss of wealth, the loss of children, and now watching her husband go through torment. Um, that that's a brutal thing. Um, and I, I'm just just because I'm thinking about it now, even, but like even the graciousness of God to in, you know in that culture in that time to kind of protect Job's wife from having to endure some of the the physical torment, I think is kind of a unique too. But dude, her his response is so gracious. Um, and I would have never thought about that unless you unless we were working through this thing together. And, and I'm just going to, just a total side note, this is the first time I'm talking to Evan about Job uh, and he's more talking at me and I'm just processing with you. So it's kind of fun that all of us get to enjoy it's good. Uh, this journey together. So It's but, good times. Yeah. I so promise I won't. It's totally unique and powerful. So I promise I won't spend like an inordinate amount of time on it. He might. I just like it. And listen, we've adjusted the, I've adjusted some of the podcast content on my side to allow opportunities for Job to breathe because I think it's a significant book and I think Evan's done a phenomenal job working through it. So, so enjoy it. Well, thanks friend. Uh, So after this, we're introduced to pretty much like a bunch of the main characters of the book, at least the first half of the book. So we get Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Um, They arrive probably a couple months after the suffering has begun just because they they arrive together. And so it seems like all of the suffering happens, they catch wind of it, and then they probably communicate with each other, hey, let's go comfort Job. And then they pick a day, they all arrive at the same time. So that kind of seems like the type of thing that would take a little bit to put together. Um, and here's the thing also, again, p- speaking of characters who get a little bit of a bad rap, I think Job's friends get a bad rap because what they say to Job, and we'll read through this, um, is bad. It's evil. Yeah. Um, at the same time, they, in their own way, are trying to be true friends to Job. And so their sin isn't so much one of being enemies intentionally, it's they become enemies of Job trying in the midst of trying to be his friend, which in a way is really scary because you also think about like, how often do we do that where we think we're doing (laughs) the right thing, but we don't. Um, and so I think it's significant that, they, that they, they arrive at his home and what is the first thing that they do? They see Job. It says actually at first they don't even recognize him because of how disfigured he is and how much pain he's in and he's in the sackcloth and everything. But they sit down and they listen to him. They listen to him weep and they sit with him for seven days in silence. Again, don't, silence. don't skip past that. Like before they start to speak and when they start to speak, we'll get to it because they, they say some really bad things. But the first thing they did is they just sat with their friend while he was going through something. So I don't know, like, again, like for all of their faults, I think they do, they they truly do love Job in their own way. Uh, But anyway, Job breaks his, the silence in with his lament. And this is kind of what kicks off all of the poetry that we're going to see. 
I think one of the most powerful things about the book is that it doesn't mince words when it comes to the grief that Job is walking mm-hmm. through. Um, his lament is, you've probably never heard a sermon on it because it's some of the most depressing stuff in the Bible. Like there's no, there's no hope. There's no triumph. Um, there's, there's certain parts of Job's replies specifically that we'll get to that are actually really triumphant. There's the famous passage of, um, I know that my redeemer lives, which is one of the most powerful passages in Mm -hmm. Job, but it's, I think sometimes we pick those out and we don't forget, we, we forget that for most of the book, he's talking about the pain that he's walking through. Um, he spends the whole chapter, it's kind of this interesting progression in chapter three, where he wishes that he was never born, or he, sorry, he wishes he was never conceived. Hmm. And then he wishes he was never born. And then he wishes that he died when he was a young man or like a child, um, which was, which would have been very common back then. I think that's another thing that, thank, thank goodness, we don't deal with that as much today. Um, but back then it would have been incredibly common for half of your kids to not grow into adulthood. Yeah. So Job is kind of wishing to be one of one of those children. Um, and then finally he wishes he could just die now. And so it ends with, this is how he ends his, his lament. And so this is verses 20 through 26. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it comes not and dig for more than hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are gr- glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Like it's, oh my gosh. Like you can just feel the pain like that he's walking through. Um, I also think this is one of the things I read in, in one of the commentaries, but when he says, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? It's the same word that the Satan uses when he says, you've put a hedge around Job. Hmm. And so hmm. it's it's turned where God has had a protective hedge around Job. And now Job sees that same hedge as being the very thing that traps him. So it's kind of, it shows how... Um, yeah, it shows how much, I guess, like Job's relationship with God seems to have been severed. It shows how much Job's life has fallen apart. Yeah. It also just reminds me that Tim Hawkins has a great bit about like, why is hedge the word? Because it just means something different than it, mean, than it meant back then. Because now it's like, he's, he's like, we're going to put up a hedge of protection around around this. And then like Satan comes up, he's like, shrubbery? No. <laughs> so anyway, I, I love Tim Hawkins. That guy's funny. Uh, anyways, after this. We're going to get into this week. I think we're reading Eliphaz and Bildad's first first speeches. Um, so Eliphaz is the first to speak, and he kicks off the first of three cycles, which we kind of talked about at the beginning. And he actually is—he's the most polite of the friends. Um, he seems to be the one who is the actual closest friend to Job of the group. Um, it also could be because he he speaks first. And I think what the friends thought they were going to do is sit with Job for a while, let him get it all out. And then they were going to bring correction and Job would be like, you're right. And that would be the end. So when Job doesn't say you're right, all of a sudden you'll, the, the conversation immediately just dives <laughs> off a cliff. And, but yeah, no, it starts off really polite. By the end of the conversations, they're straight up just accusing Job of things that they have no proof mm-hmm. of in, in the desire to be right, but also in the desire to see that Job repents of this imaginary sin that they think he's committed. So, Well, and I even wonder if it's also trying to make sense of what's actually happened. Yes. And you, you have this tension 
that you, I mean, I, I, cause I just played out how I would do it. Right. If what I say is not assumed, right. Then it's trying to make sense of what's actually going on the cause behind it. Um, and the thing is, we don't always understand it. Job, I mean, sitting in, in Job's seat, there is no clarity mm-hmm. until the very end. Why? Um, and it's not, he doesn't even, he actually, he doesn't even know why everything played out the way it did. At the end of the day, it was just God, God's confession and, of who God is. So, and he ne- yeah, he never, that's the thing. Well, and spoiler, he's never given an answer why. Spoilers to the end of the book. Yeah. Job has never told anything about, what? we as the so, readers, anyway. we as the readers know why Job is suffering. Yep. Job never does. Um, and so if you believe that Job wrote the book, then at some point God would have had to have revealed that to him. But I, I, I tend to think that Job did not write this. I tend to think that this is something that comes along much later. Anyway. Um, yeah. Anyway. So Eliphaz starts off and he says, if one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling and you have made him firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Oh, that's an interesting. That's an interesting yeah. question, Eliphaz. Uh, remember who that was innocent ever perished or who or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God, they perish, and by the blast of his anger, they are consumed. So this is the really important thing, that, and this really changed the way that I viewed the book of Job when I, when I finally realized this. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Job all have the same worldview. Job does not believe anything different than what his friends believe. The problem is Job is trying to make sense of why he's suffering because he knows that he hasn't committed some grievous sin that would bring all this upon him. But again, the, the, the basic, so the argument of the Satan is that Job's morality is entirely connected to his circumstances. So if his circumstances changed, then Job's love for God would change. The other one, the friends in Job also believe that they just believe it in the flip, the flip, the other side of the coin. They believe that Job's circumstances are entirely a product of his morality. So the reason that Job is successful is because he loves God and that if his success changes, it must be because something about his morality changes. And so now here they have this man that they all assume to be righteous. He's one of the greatest men of the East. And now his life is completely fallen apart. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, according to their worldview, the only explanation is that Job has been a secret sinner for some time, and now God is punishing him for it. For Job, that is what he would believe of anyone else that this happened to. He just knows it's not true. And so now he has to struggle through the idea of like, well, wait, why Why am I suffering? Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're all searching for answers as to why Job could be suffering. And the friends, they have the luxury of being able to fit it into their theology. Job doesn't have that same that same luxury. Hmm. And he spends the whole book trying to figure out why this is happening. And I will say, I, me and Aaron talked about this a little bit. This, this is the most repetitive part of the book when the friends are speaking because the friends never change their opinions. And I think we've all been in arguments like that where <laughs> it, just, it just goes around and around in circles and leads to nowhere. Um, that is what, that's what we're going to be reading through chapter 27 is the friends just keep making the same point in different ways. Job keeps refuting their point in different ways. So it's interesting in that they attack it from different angles. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, the argument is, Job, repent of your sin. And then all of this is going to go away. And for Job, 
this would actually be in a way succumbing to temptation if he did that, because again, he would be lying hmm. and he would be doing it just to get the blessing of God. And so in a really weird way, if Job actually repented of sin that he didn't commit in order to get God's blessing, the Satan would be right. So I don't know. It's just weird. Um, and I just put down, as you read through the speeches, try to pick out the friend's arguments and see where have you, where have I, where have we actually believed some of what they have to say? Because there's a lot of Job. And it even reminds me of, I had, um, um, I had a family member get COVID and they're kind of, they're older. And all I got was a text uh, from my dad saying, hey, like so-and-so is, is in the hospital. They had to put him in an ambulance, just be praying. And I remember like it freaked me out because I, like, I love this family member. But where did my mind go? It, it, it went to bartering and it was like, okay, God, what can I do? Like, what mm. can I, like, what can I do in this moment to convince you to heal? Um, and I had to like, think about, like, think about it for a second. Just be like, what am I doing? Like, this isn't mm. the way, that's not the way God works. But like, <laughs> even in that moment, and this is like mid me just being in the depths of Job and reading it. Yeah. So even like, as I'm writing about, like, this is not the way that God works. I found myself falling into that same trap that the friends fall into of yeah. like, what can I do in order to earn the blessing of God in this? So I don't know, it's, it's crazy, but think about the ways that we believe those things. Think about the lies that we believe and then think about how we as Job would have reacted if that's what was happening yeah. to us. So that's it for this week. Well, and I think it's, I think it's easy to, to associate with the circumstance driven thing. Like if my circumstances are not how I would envision them to be, then something's not right. And we think oftentimes we relate God's blessing, covering protection, favor to good circumstances. I'm blessed, quote unquote. And yeah. we use that phrase to communicate material possessions. We use that phrase to communicate health. We use that phrase to communicate so many different things, but that's not the actual reality of that phrase. And so as we read through it, I would definitely encourage just to read it slow enough to be able to process and not not associate necessarily, but to to, to think through the lens of like, man, if I'm in that seat, what would it look like? Um, so yeah, so that's just the beginning of Job. We've got a few more weeks coming. Uh, and so we're going to shift very quickly here in a moment to uh, the book of Matthew and introducing the book of Matthew. But before we do, uh, this is a spot where we get to take a moment and just ask you, if you've enjoyed this podcast so far, just to take a moment and leave us a review. Uh, we would love for you to jump on the, the the platform you're listening to, leave us a five-star review if it's Apple Podcasts. Don't just leave a five-star, but leave a comment and a review as well. Uh, and I know we do have one to, to celebrate and uh, read out loud real quick for you. I also know Spotify, we're still seeing those ratings increase. So keep doing that. Uh, I want Spotify to be forced to, ele- to allow you to write a review and not just leave a rating. Uh, so keep doing that if you're listening on Spotify or any other platform you're listening to, just make give it a rating as best you can uh, that it'll allow you to. But uh, our, our Apple podcast subs- platform, there was a new review I want to take a moment. And uh, this is from Mad Lundy. Uh, so I hope it's not someone who's actually mad. Maybe it's just a shorthand of like Maddie or Madison or uh, some other mad name. I don't know. I can't think of anything else or right Angry now. Lundy. Uh, or Angry Lundy. Uh, but th- this is just what they said. Five-star review says, was looking for a podcast to listen to every day to on my drive to work well, that would provide a study-like quote-unquote conversation on biblical topics, and this is it, exclamation point. It's more than just an overview of each book. It goes into many topics within each book of the Bible and isn't too lecture-like, which is what I'm, I strive for. Um, these guys provide a combination of sermon and an academic book study all in one. Uh, and we strive to really be uh, an intentional podcast where we just talk through scripture entirely. So, uh, Mad Lundy, thank you for that review. We appreciate that. Uh, and we look forward to, to celebrating many more in the coming weeks after Evan gets back from podcast or well, from vacation. Aaron, thank you for being gracious and letting me talk about Joe. But what, 
Tell me about the Gospel of Matthew, <laughs> which we're also starting. We are starting the book of Matthew. Like I said, technically, we started this uh, yesterday, I believe, uh, if not this last weekend. Uh, but I'm just going to kind of give us a very quick overview of Matthew. It's obviously the f- first gospel uh, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those are the four gospels. Um, the author uh, is Matthew, uh, who was a former tax collector who was actually called by Christ to follow him. So he ended up becoming one of the 12 disciples. Um, you may find uh, the name Levi is more familiar than Matthew in the 12 disciple list. Uh, it's the same name. Uh, it's interesting here that I didn't know this. Um, but Mark and Luke gospel accounts actually refer to him as Levi. And some believe that Matthew might actually have two names, uh, which is not common. But Matthew Levi is something that uh, they think he might have had, um, which either came at birth, which means he was given a Matthew and a Levi name at birth, or it's something he took upon conversion, um, which I think was pretty cool. Yeah. You, well, you see that with, because Peter, or sorry, Simon yes. takes on the name Peter that Jesus gives him, but Saul was all, always had Paul as another name. He just kind of switches it because it's the Greek name that, or not the Greek, like it's, is it Greek or Roman? I don't remember. Sorry. Anyway, he takes it on Whatever as he goes, version, yeah. yeah, as he goes to witness to the Gentiles, he begins to use Paul. So you, you do see examples of both of those things and we don't know exactly which one happens with Matthew. Yeah. Could be either. And here's the thing that I love. And this is actually from my wife uh, who listens to this podcast as well, who has not left a review. So you should, oh uh, but uh, she's reading through the book of Luke. And so I'm going to read a couple passages here to compare the two when Matthew was at first called by Jesus. Uh, and so I'm going to start in Matthew chapter nine, verses nine to 13, which is, this is Jesus's call to Matthew himself. It says this verse nine, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are well that need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So obviously, Matthew's a tax collector. It's interesting to note that he uh, as a tax collector, he actually had a separate category of sinner. Uh, so when they say sinners and tax collectors or tax collectors and sinners, it actually means they they viewed the culturally, they viewed tax collectors as worse than sinners because they were taxing their own people mm-hmm. for profit on behalf of the Roman government. Um, so they had this whole category of you are even worse than sinners would be. Well, you see that even with um, Dante, who's not writing, you know, he's not writing uh, exactly what scripture says about hell, but what is the seventh circle of hell reserved for in his books? It's for traitors. It's like, I think it's Judas and um, Brutus, who are like the two people who are down there. (laughs) So it's just kind of, it's interesting that as, as humans, I think we kind of, we've almost view traitors as it's a whole separate category as even all these other sins. Well, and, and so... As Jesus calls him, I actually want to read the Luke account as well. I know we're not getting into the book of Luke, but this is, I think this is so profound to me. It actually has changed some of the way that I view, um, even with my most, my daughter's recent baptism. Uh, So Luke 5, 27 to 32 calls into account uh, Matthew's calling from Jesus as well. It says this in verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to me, or said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Then Levi, and this is, this is the Luke account. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests. And we, we see with Jesus, we see the, some of the similar things. The big party uh, is the one thing that we didn't have context in Matthew. And the brilliance of this passage, and this is, this is all my wife, so I can't take any credit for this. But the moment he got called from Jesus, we see a party was thrown. 
So not only is he called out as a tax collector who would have been re- like viewed as worse than sinners, Jesus calls him to follow him. He responds by not just obedience and following him, but then he throws a big old party with all of his friends, which is where the tax collectors and other sinners show up. And Jesus is present. And the significance of this for me today, coming into what my wife was was wrestling through or reading through in the book of Luke, is upon Matthew's conversion to faith in Christ, he threw a massive party. We say all the time in church world that one of the best decisions you can make is saying yes to faith in Christ and following him, surrendering your life to him daily and, and following him as best you can. It's a big old party that should happen. When, when in baptism here at the Grove Church, it's a big party for us. We, we celebrate life change often when baptism happens, and it's significant. And this is why it's changed for me. Conversion is, is so significant enough. We celebrate bir- annual birthdays, right? My birthday is coming up on Christmas Eve this year. I'm going to turn 39. Uh, it's going to be somewhat of a small party because it's not a big number. But when I turn 40, I've told my wife already, I, was, I kind of want to party because I'm turning 40. Ooh. Um, in two years, not I guess laser tag. Yes. Um, but I say all that to say like saying yes to Christ is so significant. So this year, my daughter actually got baptized at our last baptism gathering and we threw a party for her. We took her out to lunch. We did what we would do on any birthday. We, we bought a present for her and it was, it was more meaningful in the sense there was a, a leather imprinted bracelet that had, I've decided, cause that's the phrase we use, had the date, had a scripture of Galatians 2.20. And the reason why we did that is because we don't want to, to undersell the significance of saying yes to Jesus. Um, and baptism is a powerful thing. So I, I I spend all that time talking through this because I think it's really significant of Matthew's conversion story. Um, he threw a big party. Those who didn't know Jesus and just heard of him, sinners and tax collectors were in the environment and Jesus was present. And the Pharisees were the ones that got mad about it. Um, and so you see this significant conversion. Matthew is now a disciple of Jesus. And this is where he, he takes into account. He now is, begins to tell the story. And that's what the book of Matthew is going to be doing. Um, you're going to see that there's not really clarity on the purpose in most of the gospels, like we see in epistles. Um, but the purpose of the gospels was really to recount the life of Christ, the hope of the world, the gospel of Jesus, which is the good news of his, his, his Messiahship, if you will, uh, his death and resurrection and the invitation to life and life abundant. Um, the audience of Matthew appears to be mostly his fellow Jews, um, but also reviews, reveals and has this, um, extra focus of the Gentiles and reveals that they clearly uh, have salvation through Christ um, because it's intended for all nations. This is the book that we get the great commission out of. Um, But it's not, it's not specifically stated. This is why I'm writing. Matthew's intention is to write the recapturing of Christ's life in the gospel. And there is some tradition too. This is very open-handed because we don't know this for sure. Um, But there, I thought it was really interesting that he the thought is that he was leaving on a missionary journey where he would ultimately be killed and he intentionally writes down his gospel account and then gives it to someone so that no matter what happens, there is this account of what Jesus did, which I think gives, it just gives a whole nother weight yeah, to it, I suppose, absolutely. when you think through it through that lens. Yeah. So just to give a quick overview of the book, I love the way the essence of the New Testament, which is one of the books we refer to often here on the podcast, uh, draws the book into three parts, the book of Matthew. Part one reveals the person of Jesus, which is chapter one to chapter four, 17. Um, Part two is the idea of the proclamation of Jesus. In essence, this is now Jesus's ministry unfolding. This is now the acts that he's, he's then initiating the miracles, the kingdom principles. Uh, So you see that from chapter four, verse 17 to 16, 20. Uh, And then the third part is the passion and authority of Christ. And this is the final pieces as he's leading to 
his, the crucifixion, his death, and the resurrection, uh, and the final stages leading up to that, starting in, in chapter 16, verse 21, uh, to the end of the book 28. Uh, and so this week, we're actually going to be jumping into the bulk of the first two parts. Uh, we'll finish the first part broken down there. We'll finish this, the majority of the second part. We'll see the genealogy of Jesus and, and the Christmas story with the wise men, but there are no shepherds referred to in Matthew's account. Oh, um, but there are shepherds still in the account, just the Luke account. Uh, we'll see the story of John the Baptist. We see Jesus' temptation. Uh, and this is where he fasts for 40 days and nights. Uh, the Satan shows up, tempts him three different ways. Jesus refutes the Satan's uh, temptations and and challenges. If you worship me, I'll give you this. If you worship me, I do aren't you this? Um, so we'll see that. Then Jesus' ministry launches after that temptation. One of my favorite sections of the book of Matthew um, is the Sermon on the Mount. Um, one of the most profound mm-hmm. and, and powerful messages uh, is chapters five through seven. Um, and it's very familiar to all of us. This is where we get the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the pure in heart for they'll see God. We get those um, statements, but also the like a city on a hill like uh, that can't be hidden is you're the light of the world. And so Matthew seven or five through seven is this Jesus preaching to a massive audience on the side of a mountain, which is why they called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, what? Mind blown. Uh, then you see uh, chapters eight and nine, you see the the beginning of the miracles of Jesus. He start, This is where Matthew begins to recount some of the miracles that Christ performs. There's actually 21 miracles in total that Matthew reveals or shows in the book of, uh, of Matthew, 10 of which are in the chapters eight and nine. Uh, you see chapter 10 where the disciples are then performing ministry, where Jesus sends them out. Uh, 11 and 12, you see this opposition that causes his message begins to stir and frustrate the religious leaders where they're actually becoming more uh, visually and more um, outwardly opposed to Jesus. Um, Chapter 13 hits the parables, which is all about kingdom principles. Um, And then chapter 14 and 15 and also 16, but we'll get into 16 next week, is this identity of, of Jesus the Messiah. Uh, and where he begins to reveal himself. There is a passage in chapter uh, 14 that I want to read for a moment, uh, 15, sorry. Uh, and it's just this, it's the idea of faith of a Canaanite woman, which I thought was really interesting. It says this in chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. It says, when Jesus left there, he withdrew to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came and kept crying out, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. Jesus did not say a word to her, which is so this is what I think is so profound by this. It, Jesus oftentimes is evoked and, and not evoked, sorry, is revealed in compassion and care and love for people. But in this passage, he's not. Matthew accounts that he did not say a word to her. His disciples approached him and urged him, send her away because she's crying out after us. He replied, I was only, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he refers to this woman. I was only, I'm only here for, for the Israelites. But she came, knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He answered her, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, quick side note, when he says Canaanite woman, it's often probably referring to someone who's not a Jew, uh, but a more of a Gentile in the area. When he refers to it, dogs, oftentimes dog was a word that was used by, by, Jewish, uh, by the Jewish population as a derogatory way to refer to those who aren't Jewish, to re- derogatory way to refer to Gentiles. When Jesus uses this word as dogs, He's not referring to it as a wild, uh, worthless animal. He's actually referring, he's using a word that refers more of care and compassion as a more of a domestic pet. It's like someone would talk about their pet. Um, so when he says and throw it to the dogs, he's not saying a wild, worthless animal. He's saying 
It's not worth, it's not good to give the bread from my table to my pet, someone I care about, something I care about. And so Jesus even there begins to, to um, usurp the, the perception of someone who's not Jewish. Um, and so then she said back, she said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. This is significant because Jesus's response reveals a lot of significance. It says, woman, your faith is great. In other words, you're not part of my people, but you believe in me based upon what you've heard about me. And yet you've come to me begging, not in like the uh, derogatory sense, but you've come to me in desperation. And even though I've refuted and even though I've pushed you away, when he even said that, when he he said, I will only send to the lost sheep of the house of your, he not, he's not showing preference. He's actually testing her faith. How sincere is your faith? Then he follows it up with a compassionate communication of a dog. Like it's not good to throw bread to dogs. He's testing her faith in this moment. And she still stands firm and says, you, I trust in you. I believe in you. Even a crumb from your table will do more than anything else anywhere else. And so Jesus' response was, woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment, her daughter was healed. And I thought it was so significant because we can see a, almost like a bad rap of Jesus in, this, in his interaction with this woman. But even in his interaction, it's strategic, it's intentional, and it's caring. And that's what I think is so profound about it. And that's what I love about that passage. Um, and that kind of brings us to the end this week of what we're going to be reading. We're going to read chapter 16, uh, which will give us a, some more pictures of, of, about who the Messiah is, the work that he's done before we launch into his passion and authority next week. We'll get into that. But uh, that's a very, very fast overview, I know. Um, but Matthew is a book I think many of us are familiar with. Um, and as you read through it, you're going to have this account of understanding Jesus um, from from a, a Matthew's perspective, who was considered the lowest of the lows, it, it was invited to belong by Christ, my paraphrase and my relevant way of communicating it. And he threw a massive party and then told the story right before he went on this big missionary journey. So uh, that's the book of Matthew so far. We'll finish it up next week. Um, but that's kind of the fun piece of it. Actually, we're not going to finish up next week. But we're going to finish it up in the next couple of weeks. Next couple of weeks. So. We're going to be in Matthew and Job for a, a decent chunk of time yeah. now. So. All right, well, last thing before we wrap it up, we went a little bit over this week, listeners, so hopefully you forgive us for that. Uh, but we did get a question. It says, I was wondering if the father-in-law of Moses, Hobab, mentioned in Judges 4.11, was the father of the Cushite woman whom Aaron and Miriam despise. The NIV says that he was Moses' brother-in-law. However, the NASB, ESV, KJV, and NKJV all refer to Hobab as father-in-law. Uh, my curiosity peaked as my wife and I were reading Judges and Hobab popped up. I've read the Bible over 50 times. Wait, also, side note, kudos. That's awesome. Uh, and missed this until she brought it up. I know that in Exodus, the father-in-law is referred to as both Reuel and Jethro. So I was curious as to uh, your mention of the Cushite incident prompted this question. All right. So this, this is actually a really good question. I did a little bit of, did a little, little bit of research on this. So here's a few possibilities. Uh, Hobab could be just another name for Jethro. So Jethro, and he, uh, the listener already pointed out, he's also called Reuel. Um, I think that's how you say that. I'm just kind of going for it. Uh, so it's possible that he also has the name Hobab. Um, Hobab is for sure the name of Jethro's son. So Jethro has a son named Hobab, and he is the one who kind of, he helps out the Israelites. Moses asks him to um, be a guide for them on the Sinai Peninsula, which is, I didn't realize it's, it's never actually recorded what he says, like how he answers it. So it's just kind of, 
it's implied that he hmm. says yes and helps them, but it's never actually directly stated. Uh, and so it could be that the word for father-in-law here is better translated as brother-in-law, which is what the NIV does, right? That's why they change it over to brother-in-law. Uh, and then I was going to put, given how ancient Semitics viewed family, it's very possible that they are descendants of Hobab. So in other words, the people that the judges are referring to, they're descendants of that son of Jethro, but they would reference it as Moses's father-in-law as that's kind of the title of the patriarch of the family. But more directly, they're all descendants of Jethro, but more directly, they're descendants of Hobab. Could mm-hmm. be what's happening there. Um, it's probably not the father of the Cushite woman, just because it's the same It's the same name as the person who was the guide in the Sinai Peninsula. So if that's the case, it seems like that would be someone who was from that land. Because otherwise, why would you ask for a guide from a different country to come in and guide you around this? Because you would both be strangers in the land. Yeah. Um, so he's probably not a man from the area. But then again, there could also be two Hobabs. So maybe there is like Jethro, maybe Jethro's son and the father of Moses' second wife both had the same name, which is, you know, it's theoretically possible. It's very possible. But great, great question. Great, great pickup there because I'd never thought about that before. Yeah. And I, I don't have anything to add. I think Evan did the best job communicating that. So definitely a great question because I don't know if I would have thought of that too. So thank you. Well, that wraps it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can do that on our website. There's a gift button in the upper right-hand corner. But hey, thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great day.